0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For all of science's successes in understanding complex systems, brains are still mostly terra incognita. Maybe not for long. Researchers have published a staggering map of every single neural connection within a section of a fruit fly's brain. And East Africa is suffering an invasion of locusts of nearly biblical proportions. Hundreds of billions of the insects are threatening food supplies and lives across the entire region. The sad truth is that much of this plague could have been prevented. First up, though.
0: Mr. Moran. Not guilty. Ms. Murkowski.
1: Yesterday, America's Senate voted to acquit President Donald Trump on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Said Donald John Trump be... And he is hereby acquitted of the charges in said articles. It was the third such trial in the nation's history. In December, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Mr. Trump after he was accused of soliciting foreign interference in the 2020 election.
2: As Speaker of the House, I solemnly and sadly open the debate on the impeachment of the President of the United States.
1: The Senate trial lasted just three weeks, and no witnesses were called. Without objection, the motion is agreed to. The Senate, sitting as a court of impeachment, stands adjourned, sign a die. As had been predicted for so long, Republicans stuck by the president, while Democrats voted to remove him.
3: The vote was almost entirely along party lines. John Fasman is The Economist's Washington correspondent. The only defection was Mitt Romney, who is a Republican senator from Utah. He was his party's presidential nominee in 2012. He found President Trump guilty of abuse of power.
1: Corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can
3: imagine. He gave really a very moving speech on the Senate floor about why he reached this conclusion.
1: I'm sure to hear abuse from the president and his supporters. Does anyone seriously believe that I would consent to these consequences
3: other than from an inescapable conviction that my oath before God demanded it of me?: And he voted for removal on the first article, and on the second article, obstruction of Congress, it was a straight it was a straight party line vote.
1: And Mr. Trump is already trailing a victory speech he'll give later today. He's going to claim total exoneration.
3: Well, uh, yes, the jury has found him not guilty. And that's, that's how a trial works. If you're, if you're not guilty, you're exonerated. Now, at the same time, the president was impeached. And he is one of three presidents that has been impeached. And that's certainly part of his legacy. But he clearly feels himself to be exonerated. Just after the Senate acquitted him, he posted this meme of, of Trump 24, 28, 20, 32 yard signs. And I was at his rally in in Des Moines on Thursday night, and I heard him make a similar joke about staying in office for another 10, 14, 18 years.
1: Failing New York Times, when we leave in 10, 14, 18, 22 years from now, the New York Times will be out of business, and so will a lot of others.
3: And, you know, Susan Collins, senator from Maine, said she was voting not guilty, but thought he'd be chastened. She thought he'd learned a lesson. And when he heard about Susan Collins' comments, he said again that his call was perfect. His call with Zelensky was perfect. So he clearly thinks he's been exonerated, and we should expect that he'll act as though he's been exonerated.
1: How much of an issue do you think it is that the Senate was able to acquit him without hearing from witnesses? I mean, objectively, can this be called a fair trial?
3: Uh, No, I think it, it was not a fair trial. You know, in fair trials, jurors do not coordinate with defendant. Trials have witnesses. Now, I think it was a mistake for Democrats not to allow the process to play out in court. And I think, remember, impeachment is not strictly a legal proceeding. It's a, it's a, it's a political process with a sort of legal structure. Um, but Republicans had this double-headed argument, right? On the one hand, they said the Democrats had no firsthand witnesses who could testify to what the president did and said. But they also blocked any firsthand witnesses from testifying. And so that, in my view, makes it not a terribly fair trial.
1: And what about that argument, that he may have done all the things he was accused of, but that those offenses weren't actually impeachable, a defense laid out in in most fantastical form by Alan Dershowitz on the president's legal team?
3: Well, I mean, the Dershowitz line that impeachment requires criminal or criminal-like behavior is clearly wrong. Richard Nixon was nearly impeached for abuse of power, which, of course, isn't a crime. One of the articles against Andrew Johnson, who was impeached in 1866, was that he spoke with a loud voice certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues with the intent to disgrace Congress, and that also isn't a crime. And some constitutional scholars may disagree on whether what President Trump himself did in this case was impeachable, but nobody actually believes that impeachment requires a crime. And Gerald Ford said at best, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House believes to be an impeachable offense. And, you know, I strongly suspect that if the parties were reversed, if, you know, say Barack Obama— had asked Ukraine to dig up dirt on Mitt Romney in 2012 when Republicans controlled the House, they would impeach the president quite quickly.
1: And much of that was because Republicans fell in line so completely behind him after just a few murmurs of dissent, anyway. Why do you think it is that they showed that unity in the end?
3: I think it was out of fear, mostly. And it's, it's not just me saying that. Sherrod Brown, a Democratic senator from Ohio, wrote in today's New York Times that his colleagues know what the president did was wrong. And I've spoken with Republicans in Congress Off the record, they are far more critical and sometimes even derisory of President Trump in private than they ever would be in public. Tim Alberta, who writes for Politico, wrote that even retiring Republicans worry that if they cross Trump, that could affect their earning power once they're out of office and they're standing in their community. They're largely Republican communities. um, So they stay quiet.
1: Well, this Ukraine tale has been pretty all-consuming, but but ever since the campaign, there have been all sorts of murky legal matters about Mr. Trump relating to Russia, to paid-off porn stars, to tax returns. Surely his legal troubles aren't
3: over here. You know, Donald Trump has spent a lot of his life entangled in legal proceedings of one sort or another. I'd be loath to ever say his legal troubles are entirely over. And remember, the House can keep investigating him. Jerry Nadler... The House Judiciary Chairman said today that his committee might subpoena John Bolton, President Trump's former national security advisor. So I don't think Democrats will impeach him again, but neither do I think he's out of the legal weeds.
1: I mean, he's denied each and every allegation of wrongdoing, and and his base buys those denials. Do you think this whole impeachment debacle will have any effect on November's elections?
3: Honestly, I think it'll be ancient history by November, and, and Democrats might prefer it that way. His approval ratings have ticked up during impeachment. And when they took back the House in 2018, it wasn't because of President Trump's malfeasance. It was because moderate Democrats in swing districts ran on health care and on other sort of tangible issues. And I've spent the last two weeks on the campaign trail in Iowa, New Hampshire, and I have not had a single conversation with a voter about impeachment. You know, I think the Democratic candidates will probably fundraise off impeachment. The left is always happy to tell itself how awful President Trump is. But to voters who will determine the congressional majority and really the presidency, these voters in swing states and swing districts, I don't think it'll matter very much.
1: But surely if, if wrongdoing has been widely admitted, but the, the bar for impeachability has evidently been, been raised, this this still has the power to alter the presidency, to alter executive power.
3: Well, I think that's the fear. President Trump has invited foreign intervention in American elections. He asked Ukraine to interfere in an American election. He stood on the White House lawn— and ask China to way, interfere in an American likewise, election.
1: China should start an investigation into the Bidens.
3: Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with uh, with Ukraine. So I would say and that- Russia meddled in the election in 2016, and they have paid no price for doing so. So I think that we are all but assured of seeing foreign intervention on a massive scale in the 2020 election. Another concern is the sort of the, the shape of what President Trump Did yesterday morning I was in New Hampshire and I saw a Bernie Sanders rally Trump gets away with it Sanders said that the president can now say to a governor of the state, you know We have all this infrastructure money for you and you'll get it when you endorse me
0: That's using the power of the presidency for your own in this case personal and political benefit
3: That is unconstitutional and that should not be allowed And that's essentially what the president did with Zelensky, and that apparently is now completely fine. Presidents can now flout congressional subpoenas. The scope of congressional oversight has dramatically narrowed. So I think, in the the near term at least, the scope of the presidency is dramatically more expansive than it was before. He can do things that he could not do before.
1: Thanks very much for your time, John.
3: Thanks, Jason. Always good to be here.
0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.
1: Science has developed some staggering abilities to peer into and parse complex biological systems. But brains remain a daunting subject of study. Mapping even the tiniest portion of one requires painstaking work, work that until recently was done by hand. But last month, scientists published a vast three dimensional brain map 12 years in the making that opens up a new frontier.
4: Okay, shall I start now? Okay, so I'm looking at my laptop and typing in the URL for the Janelia campus website.
1: Alec Jaw is the economist science correspondent.
4: Okay, so what I'm looking at here is a sort of split screen on the website, and on the left, there is what looks like, it's like a splatter painting, basically. Uh, Multiple colors, dots, lines, a crazy Jackson Pollock. And then if you click on one of the dots, on the right, you get what looks like quite a complex root system. And what it actually is, is a brain cell. It's a brain cell of a fruit fly, and all the connections to the other brain cells in the fruit fly. And you can spin it around, it's a 3D rendering and it's real. It's all real. It's
1: all real and it's pretty, but tell me why it's important.
4: So this is a research tool that's been about 12 years in the making. It's what they call a connectome of part of the brain of a fruit fly. And a connectome is simply the position and all the links between all the neurons and nerve cells of an organism. And in this case, it's one third of the fruit fly brain, which they're calling the hemibrain. There are 25,000 brain cells in there and around 20 million connections or synapses between them. And the high-level concept is that if you can understand how a brain is wired, you will then know why it behaves in the way it does.
1: And this kind of mapping of the brain cells and their connections has never been done before?
4: No, it's incredibly difficult to do. And the only creature that's had its connectome completely mapped is the nematode worm, which is tiny and it's much, much less complicated. So back in the 80s, the nematode worm had its connectome uh, mapped, That has only got around 300 neurons and something like 7,000 connections. And that was done painstakingly. And what the researchers did was to slice very thin slices of the nematode worm, stain them so that you could uh, see the brain cells, and then essentially uh, use coloured pencils to mark where the nerve cells were and the connections between them. I mean, it took a long time and is incredibly hard work. So that's the only one. Previously, there have been very, very small chunks of mouse brain, like a millimetre cube, that have had some resolution of connectome done, but nothing like this.
1: So why the fruit fly?
4: Well, so the fruit fly is the classic model organism for all of biological research. I mean, it was one of the first things that had its genome sequenced. And a lot of the brain uh, systems within it, so navigation, sleep, all those sorts of things, are similar to higher order animals. And so it's a great test organism. Plus also, it's a tractable problem. The fruit fly has something like 100,000 neurons in its brain. We've done the connectome now of 25,000 of those. The mouse brain has something like 100 million neurons, which is many orders of magnitude higher. The human brain, something like 100 billion neurons. So the fruit fly brain is something that you can actually might be able to achieve in the technology we have.
1: Well, that's just it. If the nematode experiments on just 300 neurons took all that time with the slicing and the colored pencils and so on, how was this done? Surely not the same thing.
4: No, so you needed quite a lot of technical improvement. They used a scanning electron microscope, but a very specific one, which used ions of gallium, so charged gallium particles, to sort of etch away a few atoms thick of, of brain. And then the scanning electron microscope would take a picture, and then the beam of gallium ions would, would come back and take off another few atoms. So there's how they got the pictures. And then to actually go through the pictures to understand what's in there, I mean, if you had humans doing that, it would, they calculated that it would take something like 200 years of full-time scientist effort to go through and map um, all these connections. I mean, we're talking dozens dozens of people, which is really not possible. So they use what we all use now for science machine learning. So Google's algorithms in object segmentation were used to identify where the neurons were in an image, um, where there might be um, um, axons connecting things, where there might be synapses. And it took, with 50 proofreaders, Human proofreaders, this algorithm took about two years to go through what must have been several million of these scanning electron microscope pictures and then it stitched it all together into this three d model
1: okay, so with all of this painstaking work behind us what what good is is the connectome besides being uh, besides being an impressive piece of work
4: so for example, a lot of the researchers at Genelia look at Behaviors of animals. They might w- try and work out how a fruit fly navigates in space, for example. And so they know that a certain number of neurons are involved in that, and certain neurons fire at certain times. Now there are theoretical models to say which neurons are firing and which ones are connected to which ones, and so on. But that's all been theoretical. We, they're not actually seeing these connections by by looking at the the axons between the the brain cells and by looking at where the synapses are, which ones are actually firing you get a whole level of insight. Oh no, this is true. Our theories have been correct.
1: But having the uh, connectome then for more complex animals is is surely required if we're going to get to, to some insights about those more complex animals. I mean, how will that come about?
4: Right. So the technology has to get a lot better before we get to what we're really interested in, which is human connectomes. So human connectomes, humans have something like 80 to 100 billion neurons and many orders of magnitude, more connections between them. The the thing is that that will take decades to get to. Jerry Rubin, who is the scientist behind this connectome, he's the head of the Genedia Lab, he says that it will take at least another 10 years before the mouse connectome can happen, and the mouse only has something like 100 million neurons. And then probably another decade or so before we're in the place where machine learning algorithms, where microscopy, where that technology is good enough to do one human brain. And actually, that's not even enough what we want is many human brains to be able to compare because the real insights of, of, of connectomics are going to be, what's the difference between my brain and your brain? What's the difference between my brain and um, a brain with Alzheimer's, for example? And that kind of thing might help you understand what happens in different types of brain and, and why it goes wrong sometimes.
1: And, and so that seems exceedingly difficult now, but then again, this result that we're looking at today seemed exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, back then.
4: Correct. And the human connectome is going to be very, very hard, but it's absolutely not impossible.
1: Alok, thank you very much for joining us.
4: You're very welcome, Jason.
1: Horn of Africa is experiencing a grave invasion of locusts. Vast swarms have overwhelmed farms in Ethiopia and Somalia, where the problem is the worst it's been in a quarter century. In Kenya, the worst in 70 years. The insects are wiping out vital crops in a region already struggling with food insecurity. This week, Somalia declared a state of emergency, its agriculture minister saying, we risk a severe food crisis that we cannot afford.
2: These locust infestations in East Africa are actually the worst in a couple of decades. The scale really is vast, so one swarm recently seen in northeastern Kenya had around 200 billion locusts in it. That's about, in spatial terms, three times the size of New York City. And there are dozens of swarms in Kenya alone.
1: Kinley Salmon reports on Africa for The Economist.
2: Perhaps the worst thing about this is that certainly some of this uh, could have been prevented.
1: And so what kind of damage do do swarms of this size wreak?
2: Well, the damage can be pretty devastating, um, both for crops, but also the vegetation that animals feed on. About 12 million people in Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia are already classed as suffering from food insecurity at a pretty large scale. And locusts make this a lot worse. They eat crops like maize and teff that are staples in the region, and so it's really a threat for people's livelihoods. How has it come to this? Well, this set of locusts, this set of swarms can actually be traced back into the Arabian Peninsula back in 2018. And the FAO, the the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, warned in July of 2019 that these swarms could migrate out of Yemen into the Horn of Africa and ultimately into Kenya if no action was taken. They appealed to the international community for funding to try and deal with the problem back in Yemen, but very little support came forward. And then, of course, these locusts did reach Ethiopia, where farmers lost 100% of their crops in some cases.
1: And so what did Ethiopia do at the time?
2: Well, they certainly tried to tackle the problem, but the scale of it, I think, overwhelmed the resources that they had. And so in September of 2019, they asked the FAO for help in raising about $2 million to tackle it. By November, they were asking for $6 million. But again, little support was forthcoming. And then, of course, now we're in Kenya, and recently the UN has asked for $70 million to try to spray these swarms that are now moving around very rapidly from the air. It's certainly got a lot more expensive.
1: And so what is it that's made these, these swarms so big?
2: Well, firstly, the trouble is that these insects breed incredibly rapidly. They only live for three to five months, but in favorable conditions, each generation can be 20 times larger than the previous one. They also move very quickly. You know, they can move up to 150 kilometers a day. But there are other issues too. So some of the prevention that would normally happen has been made more difficult by conflict that's ongoing in Somalia and also in Yemen. And then I think importantly, weather has played a role here. So extreme weather, there have been eight cyclones in the Northern Indian Ocean uh, in 2019, which is the worst since 1976. That kind of weather brings rain, that creates vegetation for locusts to feed on, and when they feed, they can breed more and more.
1: And so you say that a lot of this could have been prevented. You mean if the $2 million could have been raised when this was a a smaller
2: problem in Ethiopia? Yeah, or or actually even earlier, there was this request for funds back in Yemen. And and at that point, it's easier to tackle these swarms when they're not flying, when they're still just hopping on the ground, and also before the population has really boomed. And at that stage, they can even be tackled with spraying on foot or out of vehicles, which can, can get some of the crisis tackled there was a previous crisis back in 2003 through 2005 in Northwest Africa that got pretty out of control. And that in the end cost $600 million in control and caused about $2.5 billion worth of damage. And experts tell us that that $600 million that was spent on control would have been enough for 170 years of preventative measures in the same region. So prevention really is much more cost effective.
1: So why doesn't it happen?
2: Well, prevention is not as exciting for donors. Donors like to help out with big emergencies and things that get the TV news. And donors are also slower than locusts. You know, By the time they've got moving, the crisis can get out of control.
1: And do, do you have a sense for how this particular crisis will be resolved?
2: Well, clearly right now there's an urgent need for that funding uh, that the UN has appealed for, that $70 million, to upscale the, the spraying that's beginning to happen and also support for livelihoods for people that have been affected. But there is a real risk that this could get worse before it gets better. Uh, The FAO says that these locusts could increase in population by 500 times by June, and they may also affect other countries. Northern Uganda and South Sudan are both potentially at risk from these infestations. There's a real need for urgent action right away.
1: Kinley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.